Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Welcome to the weekend edition of the AE Report. Corey and Chad here this weekend, focusing more on trading these markets, starting with U.S. equity markets and also looking at some of the resource sectors, especially the energy sector in the back half of this first hour. We are chatting with Rick Bensignor, president of Bensignor Investment Strategies, writes the institutional newsletter, supposedly irrelevant factors. That is read by some of the most successful hedge funds in the world. On the retail and individual side, check out the In the No Trader website. Rick has three products there, a monthly report called the 711, where Rick picks no more than seven of the 11 spider ETFs with the goal to beat the S&P, weekly report called the Tactical Trader Report, and a daily report called the Daily Tip Sheet. Rick, let's get right into it in terms of U.S. equity markets. We've seen the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ are very close, the NASDAQ, to all-time highs. And these highs just seem to keep on getting confirmed as markets keep on running higher. We do get the odd argument that the breadth just isn't there. But hey, just look at these broad averages. Money is clearly coming in. Rick, how sustainable, how much higher could this bull market run? Well, we've seen it before. It doesn't happen that often. But uh, we've now shut up over, I don't know, where we're, we're approaching 25% or something like that off of the October low without a 5% pullback along the way. I'm not even sure we got more than a 3% pullback. So to answer your question, it can continue. We've seen this before. It doesn't happen that often. But on occasion, you get these kind of tectonic moves that are just changing events, and, and they can go on for a long time. And the thing is that investors need to realize, and, and I'd say that it's hard for them not to realize it because it's spoken about in the media all the time, is that you take a look at the S&P, uh, whether you know, through the spiders as the ETF or the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 tracking ETF. These are large cap index weighted, large cap weighted ETFs uh, or indexes. And as long as you've got the bigger name doing well, you can talk about breadth that's you know, not what you want to see, but if you own the spiders, you're doing just fine. In fact, you're doing tremendously well. And you don't have to individually own NVIDIA, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, etc. You just need to own the spiders and you've got them that way. So although you don't have the broadening out the way people would like to see into mid cap and small cap names, if you're an index player and you own in your personal portfolios these large cap ETFs, you're doing just fine. And you don't need to have the market broaden out. You know, you'll you'll laugh all the way to the bank on, on just having spiders. That 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 works. So I think the question that investors really need to ask themselves is do I need to see the market broaden out in order to think this can go higher? Or can these large cap names continue to carry the market higher? And I, and I think based upon this earnings season, the answer is yes. We can see the market continue to stay lofty with these 
you know, dozen names or so leading the pack. And it really doesn't matter what the other ones do as long as you've got the spiders or the cubes. If you're talking about the individual names, I dare say that your account is not anything close to what the return of the S&P is. So it's, do you want to own the indexes or do you want to own the individual names? That's really the question for any individual investor. Well, Rick, along that line of thinking, uh, while the tech sector and some of those mega cap stocks have led the weighted indexes higher and, and investors there have done very well, we have had some people on that noted there are some other sectors like healthcare or insurance or industrials that are starting to show some life. So there's more market breadth there than maybe some participants are giving it credit for. Are, you like to look at 11 spider ETFs and pick no more than seven of them for your 7-Eleven fund. Are there any that you're noticing moving up in rank, moving up the batting order, having some relative strength? Well, okay. So besides the obvious, which is tech, which is you know, just blowing away everything. You've got communication services. If you look at the, the three main sectors that the Magnificent Seven are in, they're tech names. Uh, Amazon and Tesla are the two leading names in consumer discretionary. That's ticker XLY. XLC is communications, and that is uh, Google and, uh, and Meta. So those continue to be the leaders. The big laggards are REITs and utilities. Uh, healthcare had a horrible year last year, gave back everything it had outperformed the prior year. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of people came into this year saying healthcare would be, you know, a, a very favorable sector. It's doing okay, but these indices are dominated by those three: XLC, XLY, XLK. And that's really where, as long as you believe that the MAG-7 are going to generally be your price leaders, then that's really where you want to have your concentration. So, Rick, look, you play the ETFs, right? And there, there's a lot of investors, majority of investors, I think, do play ETFs rather than individual stock picking. I like that question that you asked there. Do you want to own the ind indexes or individual names? Give us some insights on why you own the ETFs and why we have seen such a shift to investors investing in ETFs rather than driving down into the individual stock names. Well, look, when I designed the 7-Eleven report and the whole concept here of outperforming the S&P, it made sense to me that the easiest, most efficient way of doing that is by playing the 11 sectors that make up the S&P 500 instead of playing individual stocks. And as long as you have, let's say, tech, which I've had continuously since I started, I've never not had tech in being one of the seven. As long as you have the sectors that are now predominating the market, you have a much better chance of outperforming. And of course, anybody can go and play individual names. And look, if you were long, if you had a portfolio, let's just for argument's sake, these seven names, and that was your portfolio, you've crushed the S&P. You, you've had obviously total concentration in tech, communication services, and uh, consumer, consumer discretionary. And, and you would have just blown the S&P away because of the performance of these names. And these are the biggest names of the S&P 500. So if you own the biggest cap names and they're blowing away the market, you would have done spectacularly. It's a lot easier trying to figure out, if, if you think about the money management industry 
and how few people actually beat the S&P over time, then trying to pick individual names is probably not how you're going to be able to do it. It really comes down to being in the right sectors at the right time. And because of the advent of ETFs, it's, it's a far superior way of approaching the market than trying to pick and create a portfolio of 20, 30, maybe I'd say definitely don't want more than 50 names in your portfolio. You can't possibly manage them or stay on top of everything that you would need to know. It's a lot easier just paying attention to the 11 sectors and figuring out as best you can doing a variety of different forms of analysis, which of the seven I want to be in. And believe me, not every month do I outperform, but interestingly, most months I do. Do I always have every sector correct? No. But for instance, January, typically one of the toughest months of a year to beat the S&P because you just don't know how the money flows are going to be to start the year. I beat the S&P in January by 80 bips. The 7-Eleven report, if you did as instructed, once a month, you just kind of reallocate on the first of the month. You are outperforming the S&P in the last three and a half years by an additional 17.3 percentage points above the return that the S&P has gotten during that same time. In the money management industry, that's as good as you're ever going to find when you have a portfolio that's actually benchmarked to the S&P. I, I think using ETFs, the tax efficiency of ETFs and the ability to more concentrate your decision, instead of trying to figure out how one company is going to do, it's easier to figure out how an industry is going to do collectively. And if that industry is going to most likely do better or worse over time, than the broad market does. And to my knowledge, there's nothing like it that you can find that outperforms like this has by making, you know, spending 10 minutes a month just reallocating on the first of each month. Well, Rick, along this line of thinking about passive investive or, P or investors going into ETFs, we've had a lot of discussion on the show about how that could be changing the investing landscape because so much investing is now passive or ETF investing could that be one of the drivers why we're not seeing as much market breadth is a question we keep coming back to because people aren't picking all these individual stocks. So maybe is some of the weakness in the small caps or some of the other sectors because everybody is simply piled into the same trades through their investing houses or through their uh, brokers or through ETFs. And could that be a sea change in the markets for how people invest in general compared to maybe having a broader spectrum of stocks in one's portfolio? Well, this goes back to asking yourself a question of what's your goal? Is your goal to make money over time? Well, if that's your goal, then have a, a broadly diversified portfolio of stocks and perhaps a way, way smaller amount of bonds. But let, let's just stick in the stock universe. You want to make money over time. You want to keep up with inflation. You invest in the stock market. Then you determine how much risk and you want to go for trying to think that you're smarter than the average investor. And can you pick a basket of enough winners who are going to outperform the market or do you just take the passive way of saying, I want exposure to the market and I'll, I'll put a combination of large cap growth, 
which are you know the S&P 500, the Qs, and of course there's tremendous overlap between QQQ and Spider. So if you have both, you really have a lot of weighting in these big cap names. And then you go down the cap scale and go into some mid caps and small caps. And you know this year is the first year that I've even thought of going into small caps for for the last several years. So you can take the approach of do I just want to have Make money over time, investing for the long haul, knowing that owning stocks is a good way to increase my personal wealth and kind of help plan for the future. Whether you're a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old, your risk tolerances may be different and should be different, but the goal is to have money later on in life for when you stop working and that you you have a nest egg that's been built so that you can live comfortably. You, you either go for individual names or you take a passive ETF or you do what I do. But of course, I'm a 40-year Wall Street veteran who has a significant trading background. The first 12 years of my career, I traded commodities and stock index futures in the pits back when they still had floor trading. I understand the markets in a different way than most people do from that background and then another 30 plus years on the buy side and the south side of Wall Street. I choose to believe that over time, I can outperform the market by picking the right sectors at the right time. However, I can tell you my general portfolio of stocks that I've amassed over the years probably has not done as well as just had I been in the S&Ps or Qs or a combination of those over the same period. Part of it is I've gotten to to the point I have too many stocks in there. I I just can't watch as many as I've built up. And that's my own fault for really exceeding. I I think the sweet spot is probably 20 to 30 stocks. Once you get past that, too many things happen and you don't pay attention unless you're looking at these things constantly, which most people don't want to do. It's easy to miss both buy and sell opportunities because you're just not watching them. Uh, I will tell you that for where probably 95% of your listeners, you will be far better off being in spiders and cues and, uh, you know, other broader ETFs than trying to pick stocks yourself. And of course, if you, if you had an NVIDIA and an Apple, those are some of the names you've done great with them. But how many names do you have that have fallen apart? How many names do you have that are worth 30% of what you paid them, you know, paid for them? We all have clunkers also. And, and if you buy spiders, there are clunkers, you know, that are in the spy, but because of the large cap waiting to them, these, these big names predominate and then therefore, you know, more than offset some of the lousy names in there. It's, it's really a matter of, you know, which approach you want. Do you, do you, are you wise enough and able to actually do better than the market over time, or do you just accept the market's return? And I'd say for most people, accepting the market's return is, is a pretty good thing. You just got to be in, and you have to be willing to tolerate you know, the drawdowns over time and, and not sell. Unless, you, unless you're a market timer like I am, You've got to be able to stay in the market when you get the drawdowns, because ultimately, over time, go look at a 50-year chart or look at a 100-year chart of the Dow or the S&P. It's going to start in the very lower left-hand corner of your chart 
and it's going to be all, and it's going to end up on the upper right-hand corner. Over time, there's very few investments you'll ever be able to make that are going to do better than owning stocks. Yeah, you look at those long-term charts outside of what almost look like natural corrections, I guess. Even crashes, they get bought back over time. I do want to shift your focus just a little bit to resource sectors. Broadly, because you look at so many sectors here, are there any that you see opportunities in? I ask this because a lot of resource sectors have been kind of boring, maybe moving sideways at best. So any that you see more potential for? I, I don't want to misspeak because I mostly look at the precious metals uh, because I'm frequently commenting about gold and silver and copper. I, I don't have a handle right now to tell you within, you know, the whole metal space, if, if nickel's about to take off or aluminum or something like that. I don't look at them closely enough because the bulk of the time I'm either writing for institutional clients, and, and that's not the most of their ballywick um, or what they have interest in. And on the individual investor side, uh, like when I'm looking at 7-Eleven, I'm looking at XLB, you know, materials, but I'm not generally digging deeply into the subsectors to figure out. I, I, I don't have the answer you're looking for. Well, Rick, I know that you do follow the energy sector. Any thoughts on just the energy sector? So energy, uh, I came into 2024 very concerned about the energy sector in relative terms to the S&P. A few years ago, it made its, I think it was 2021, it made its cyclical bottom in relative terms, had very good 22s and 23s. 24 gave back some the latter half of the year to the point that Literally, if you look at it short of XLE, the energy you know, spider ETF, divided by the spider itself, you will see a head and shoulders top. I think energy names are still somewhat relatively cheap, which will help minimize how much it may sell off. But I'm not a huge fan of energy. I do have it. I put it back in actually on February 1st, back into... Uh, the 7-Eleven, so it is one of the seven, but I, I don't know if I'm going to keep it because, as I expected, NACAS has completely fallen apart. Crude oil, you know, is in a trading range. It goes from the low 70s to the high 70s. Really can't get out of its own way right now. And frankly, if there wasn't the Mideast tensions the way there are, which I think keeps a bid to the market, it wouldn't surprise me if oil, you know, WTI oil, wasn't trading in the 50s. So I'm just, I'm not a huge fan. Uh, I have some exposure to it. It's close to benchmark weighting. You need a catalyst to get crude going and natural gas. Barrett's quoted me a few days ago in an article and I said, sure, uh, you, you certainly can buy some natural gas because, quote, it's, and this is, I'm talking about the futures, the actual price of natural gas, it's historically quite cheap, but it's still 40% above its all-time low, down just north of a dollar, and, you know, we could get there, and there's no way to manage the risk there. If you look at, even if you look at the open interest of what's going on in natural gas, the funds continue to pounce on rallies and are way short. And they're they're killing it, and it's the Wall Street swap dealers who are who are long the futures contracts. 
it's a risky, risky bet. Sure, net gas was up 10% in one day in the last week, but uh, earlier today, I saw it was down 7%. And, you know, you're kind of still playing with fire in a marketplace that is amply supplied and um, had the big run up at the start of the Russian Ukraine war. And we saw over $10 net gas. And now you're talking about a dollar sixty that gas. You you got me when and if it's going to turn around, but it's going to have a hard time. In percentage terms, sure you can make some money if you catch it right. But you know, when's the next time we're going to see five dollar natural gas? I haven't a clue. Rick, quick comment. Then you said that you do follow the precious metals. We've gotten your comments on that. Where do you think the precious metals go? What's your outlook? Obviously, very dollar driven and with the, the dollar up near the dollar index at 104 and already up a few full points this year it's certainly keeping a lid on things it's interesting in in one of my weekly reports uh, it's called the tactical trader report it comes out thursdays that individual investors can subscribe to i actually wrote yesterday that my comments have not changed in three weeks for gold i literally have not changed a single thing because it's dead money. Nothing's happening. Gold needs a good dollar decline in order for it to really get the catalyst to, to break out to new all-time highs and hold those new all-time highs. Remember, a couple months ago, we, we got a spike move up in futures that was not matched in the cash market. So futures printed a new all-time high uh, as some fund got squeezed out. And then it came, you know, it was a one to two day event, came right back down. You got to get above 2100 in gold and stay above, and then you have a chance for a good 15, 20% rally. Otherwise, hanging out here at around the $2,000 level, if you get continued strength in the dollar, uh, you're gonna, I think you're going to see gold get back $100, $150 fairly quickly. You need rates to come down and the street could not have been more wrong about what's going on in the rate market than they have been. And I think I mentioned this to you guys last month when we spoke. Coming into 2024, the biggest consensus macro trade on the street is that U.S. rates were going to fall this year. Right? There were seven Fed fund price cuts already put in in early January. Investors have already been on seven cuts this year. They're down to four cuts, getting closer to three. And it's very possible the Fed does almost nothing this year. What we're seeing is that there's a shifting psychology in the marketplace that rates can stay higher for longer. They're not going to come down materially this year. And yet the stock market can continue to hold and in this case, make new highs. And again, it's the large cap names that are doing that. But Rates at 4.3%, the U.S. tenure at 4.3%, which I would have thought would hamper the stock market's ability to rally, didn't mean they crushed the market, but the, the street was terribly wrong on this idea that rates were going to come off this year. And I think what people are more and more starting to realize is rates may not come off this year, and yet the stock market can still do decently. Yeah, that's sure been a wake-up call this year. Rates have bounced back, and it has not mattered for those markets at all. 
Rick, thank you Not so much all. for your time. Great chatting with you. I will post a link to the In the No Trader website. I recommend you all checking it out, especially for all of you that actively manage your portfolio. As Rick said, you can just subscribe to that one product where you just manage your portfolio on a monthly basis and beat the S&P. So Rick, thank you very much for your time. We'll chat next month. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. You too, guys. Thanks for having me. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin and Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report, and we're focusing on the energy sector, more specifically oil and natural gas, as we are chatting with Dan Steffens, president of the Energy Perspectives Group. Dan, I want to get right into it in terms of natural gas. Natural gas has been on, in a way, a waterfall decline here. Back about a month ago, natural gas futures were just over $3.00. As of a few days ago, I guess earlier this week, prices dropped the whole way down into about the dollar fifty range. We haven't seen these levels since back in 2020. Yes, I realize it's been, I guess, a warmer summer overall. But fact of the matter is, this is a very depressed price for natural gas. Dan, in your eyes, why has natural gas gone through such a correction now back to uh, some very, very historically low levels? Well, when we had the really cold weather spell in January, a lot of, I call them the paper traders. These are funds that just trade the futures market. And the price you see every day on natural gas is the front month futures contract, which today it's the March 24 futures contract, which will be closing next week. So all these hedge funds and stuff went went uh, long and then they had to cover. So they, when the price started going down, they're all panicking to cover and nobody's willing to take those long contracts. So it, it craters. Then after a while, they start shorting. Then on the other side, you got other hedge funds that start shorting gas, looking at the weather forecast, thinking that we're, we got enough gas in storage to make it through the winter. We don't need any more gas supply. And so they start shorting it, which happened here today on Wednesday is with it up 12%. It's because all it takes is one big hedge fund, one big paper trader that has to cover his short positions. Because if you're if you're just a hedge fund, you don't own any physical gas supply. If you get if you wait till that contract expires, you have to cover. It's like selling stocks, selling naked calls. So if you sell calls on your stock and then somebody calls you, if you don't really own the stock, you have to go out in the physical market and buy the stock to cover that short call position, that call that you sold. You have to cover it. So that's what they're doing in this. So on Wednesday, we're getting this spike because there's a panic in in, uh, that and they're having to cover their short position. So there's no way that the right price for gas is below two and probably not even close to below 250. It's just too valuable to our economy. The other thing is because of the higher interest rates, you would think, okay, if you're a utility that can actually store that gas and, and use it next winter or this coming summer for power generation, why aren't the utilities grabbing up these really cheap contracts so they do take delivery on the physical supply? 
Well, because you have a high interest rate and because you're going to have to pay storage fees on those on that gas if you buy it and put it in storage, they don't want that unless they got a huge credit line where they can get funding to cover those interest costs and the storage fees. They don't want to do it either. So you got nobody willing to take those long positions, and that's what what does this. But you know, if you look at the NYMEX strip today, the gas price is like three twenty five or something for December, and then the first quarter of next year, it's all above three because people see what's coming. We're going to need more gas and storage because all we got these big LNG export facilities coming online here in the next few months. Well, Dan, let's dig into that a little bit more because we hear a lot about these LNG facilities. We also hear about some of the coal power plants converting to nat gas power plants. So from a demand side, like you say, it's surprising to see natural gas under three, under two, definitely in the mid ones. So do you think that the market is missing something here? Why aren't more people front running the demand side of the equation here? Well, there there is much more natural gas being used for power generation now because all the utilities do have the flexibility to switch from coal to natural gas for power generation. Of course, when it's below $2, they're going to do that as much as they can. So that's what. But the other thing is we used to have a lot more coal-fired power plants. So there was a lot more of that they have the fuel switching capability available. So we don't have quite as much this year. But what's going to what's going to solve the problem is the LNG facilities, and a big one comes online here in about six months. That's Packamens down in Louisiana, and shortly after that, you've got uh, another train coming online at Corpus Christi, and you got the uh, Golden, the Golden one that's Exxon's facility that's coming also online in the first quarter. The first train of that comes online. So within twelve months, by this time next year. Uh, demand for U.S. gas will be about five BCF a day higher than it is today just for the LNG export capacity. So to Shad's question, what, why isn't the market front running this? If we have timelines on when demand's going to spike, why are investors not getting ahead of this? Well, if somebody really wanted to you know, go long and take delivery of that cheap gas now and immediately sell short so that they could deliver that gas in about six months, you know, into the, when the prices go up in the winter. Yeah, there's probably some money to be made there. But, you know, to do it in a large number of contracts, to do, you know, a lot like BCFs of gas, you got to have a hell of a credit line because <laughs> you got to hold it and you got to pay storage fees because it, it goes into a cavern someplace down in Louisiana and you got to down by Henry up in Louisiana and you've got to pay the storage fees on it. Well, Dan, just from the company side of things, how do you think nat gas companies, well, what are they doing as far as right now? How are they reacting? And then what do you think their strategy will be moving forward? Well, the thing, you know, if you're going to invest in the actual companies is to, number one, look at their hedging policy. Like EQT has got like 40%. EQT is the largest natural gas producer in North America right now. Uh, it's going to be surpassed when Chesapeake closes this deal with Southwestern. But it, right now, it's like six BCF a day of, of gas. They've hedged like 40% of this year's production is hedged at over 350. So they're not really being hurt. And they produce a lot of NGLs. And NGLs, natural gas liquids, primarily propane and butane. This is going to show you what's going to happen when we get to all this LNG export capacity online. This year, we got a lot more export capacity online for both propane and butane. And we we did have a big uh, propane surplus in storage, but that January weather combined with uh, a lot more ships coming online that could haul uh, NGLs, it just cratered. The uh, propane in storage 
went from a big surplus to below the five-year average, like over two months. It happened just incredibly fast. And so now uh, propane prices are really, really high. Propane prices are like at a two-year high right now. Dan, the biggest question here and something that we have heard from some commentators is simply does North America have too much natural gas because of the production coming out of the oil fields and also specific natural gas companies? Yeah, in, in the short run, we do. And, of course, we've got all these wells drilled for oil, like in the Permian Basin, they're drilling wells for oil. And they don't care. I look, we'll talk about Diamondback later. Later, Diamondbacks realized gas price was like a buck twenty-five. You know, there's a surplus of gas coming out of the Permian Basin because those guys, they don't, they have to give the, you know, they can't flare it. So they just have to give the gas oil most, but they don't care because they're making all their money on oil sales. Now, the good thing for them on the gas side is they are stripping out a lot of the liquids. So they're getting those high value NGLs and that's really offsetting the lower gas price. So the thing is, if you invest in this sector and upstream companies, the, one of the first things you need to look at is, is the production mix. How much oil, how much natural gas, how much NGLs do they produce? And most of them produce all three. So they have a combination, all three and liquids prices, you know, propane's up in the last month. 12, 13 percent, you know, oil's up. So year over year, propane propane prices and uh, oil prices are both up year over year. So that offsets the lower gas prices to some extent. So I'm focused on companies right now, but, you know, our Sweet 16 is heavily weighted to liquid sales. Well, Dan, just one more question on the net gas stocks, just because I know a lot of people listening, that's what the, the world they play in. So I know that you've talked on our show before about companies like Comstock or Antero, or you just brought up EQT. You know, a lot of people in Canada are in Birchcliff. There's Range Resources. There's all these nat gas companies. Would you be avoiding those right now, or would you be positioning harder in those as a contrarian bet? How are you looking at it? Well, we might be a day late, a dollar short, because all the gassers are up like 10 or 12% today. EQT is up like 12% range in those two. Antero. Now, Comstock, I've dropped it from the Sweet 16. The reason I did is they are a pure dry gas producer. Their production comes from the Haynesville. And they're, they're like 99% of their production is dry gas. They hardly have any NGLs and they have almost no crude oil. I mean, only like 200 barrels a day of crude oil, period. So they are getting hurt. And, and they only, they hedged about 20, 25% of their oil, their gas at about 350. So that's helping them a little bit, but they're, they've been outspending, they've been outspending their cash flow because they're proving up and securing a bunch of acreage in what they call the Western Haynesville. Now, if you believe that, you know, we're going to get back to 350 or something, $4 within a year, then Comstock's got huge upside because they're heavily weighted to gas. And, and they're very close. They can sell their gas down into uh, the Louisiana Gulf Coast. And, and those areas do get a premium for their gas. You know, there's a tier one area where there's so many LNG export facilities that they have strong demand down there. And it's down in South Louisiana. Yeah, one thing I find interesting, even look at these natural gas stocks with natural gas, again, at kind of these 2020 lows. The stocks are still broadly off their lows, but well off some of their highs of just last year, a couple of years ago. So something to consider there. Let's get some quick oil market commentary. 
Oil continues to, I guess, grind higher, we can say, as we're chatting. It's trading close to $80 a barrel, but it's kind of been stuck within this range of 70 to 80 for this whole year, even going back to November of last year. So, Dan, what's your outlook for oil here? Well, my, my forecast is that we're going to have $80 oil average in the second quarter and $82.50 in the second half of the year. And, and I think we may even go higher than that in the second half of the year. Oil demand is seasonal. So we are just weeks away now from uh, a rising period of demand. Uh, you also have some refineries that are doing a lot of maintenance right now. So, you know, the ref- think about it, the refiners are the purchasers of crude oil. We don't burn crude oil in our cars. You know, they have to refine it. So you got all these refineries doing annual maintenance. And then you got a really big refinery in Indiana that's been down because of a fire. They had a power outage. Then when the power came on, they had a power surge that started a fire. You know, once you have that kind of situation, you got to shut down. You got to all do this, all this testing and inspection. So it's still probably got a week to 10 days before it's coming back online. And it's one of the biggest ones. It's the second or third largest refinery in the country, like 450,000 barrels a day. But anyway, so when that comes back online and, and you get to the spring break period, around around mid-March, demand for uh, oil-based fuels, uh, primarily diesel, goes way up because uh, farming equipment that you know has to plant our food, you do have to plant food once in a while, that all runs on diesel. And you get more people traveling just as the weather improves. So Every year, the spike goes up by about 2 million barrels a day uh, for global supply. And actually, you know, inventories, U.S. and OECD inventories are in the bottom half of the five-year range. It's the opposite situation of what you got for gas, where we're above the five-year ranges in storage. And there's a serious diesel shortage in the whole world. (laughs) And that's because Russia was providing a lot of the diesel. And also, you need more black oil to produce diesel, diesel. So we have... Our distillate inventories have been running, you know, 10, 15 percent below the five year average. And here we're just, you know, weeks away from, uh, you know, the the planting season and you you need all that diesel. Well, Dan, we'll keep tabs on natural gas. We'll keep tabs on propane. We'll keep tabs on oil. We'll keep tabs on diesel. There's a there's a lot going on. But I know you wanted to highlight a couple companies and we like to do that every time we talk to you and do a deeper dive. And both these companies are related. Diamondback Energy traded under the ticker FANG, F-A-N-G, which is a great ticker. And then a spin-out from their company, Viper Energy, Venom, V-N-O-M, also a great ticker. Let's look at Diamondback Energy first. It's one of the companies that you like to highlight that's in the Permian Basin. I know they're going through a big merger. Walk us through the value proposition in Diamondback Energy. Okay, full disclosure, I do own both of these stocks because my own personal portfolio is definitely focused on buying companies that pay really good dividends. And I like both of them. They are classic, just classic growth and income stocks. Diamondback Energy has been one of the darlings of the Wall Street gang since it was formed uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And its growth story is just incredible. But Diamondback Energy is in our large cap growth fund, which is called the Sweet 16. And then Viper Energy is in our high yield income portfolio. Uh, I followed both of them since they went public. And really what I like is they both have a ton of running room. Now, Diamondback, and it's a large cap, pure play on on the Permian Basin. It has nothing outside of the Permian Basin. On February 12th, they announced that they're going to be merging with a private company called Endeavor Energy Resources, which happens to have its home office 
directly across the street from Diamondback. These guys go go to lunch together all the time, anyway. And, and uh, in a transaction that was initially valued at twenty six billion, but since the deal was announced, you know, you, you usually see the the buying company stock go down a little bit, and the and the target company go up. Well, they both went up. So Diamond Fang uh, on February the twelfth opened at $150 a share. And today it's on Wednesday, uh, it's uh, over a $180 share. So a, a pretty nice move. And you say, well, why do you still like it? Uh, well, first of all, at the, at the current share price, this transaction is now a $30 billion transaction. So one of the biggest M&A things. But what it's going to do is once the merger closes, Diamondback will be the third largest oil producing company in the Permian Basin which, number one, makes it a, a big-time target company or takeover target for a super major. Let's say Shell or, you know, the, like Exxon made that big deal for Pioneer. What if Shell decides they want to do that or Chevron or somebody wants to do something like that? Then Diamondback would be on their, on their radar screen. But anyway, they're, the consideration they're paying to Endeavor shareholders are getting $8 billion in cash, but they're also getting 117.3 million shares a fang at closing. I mean, this is a really, really big, big deal that consolidates these two companies, and it's going to push their production up to over 815,000 barrels per day, or BOE per day, with 475,000 barrels of oil per day, again, making it the third highest oil producer in the Permian Basin. Now, here's why I think it's attractive. When this cl deal closes, this is a better, more attractive company to me anyway than than Pioneer Natural Resources, which recently they're in the process of merging with ExxonMobil in a transaction that was was valued at sixty billion, which is about ten billion more than what the projected market cap of Fang is going to be when the deal closes. So Pioneer's production is about seven hundred and twenty-five thousand BOE a day, three hundred seventy-seven thousand barrels of oil per day. So uh, Diamondback's post-merger production is going to be almost 100,000 barrels a day of oil more than Pioneer's production. So just logically, you would think if you compare them together, Diamondback then has a value to a major like Exxon or Shell or somebody of $70 billion if they paid you know, sixty billion for Pioneer. But I, what I really like about it, I think don't you know, don't think about it being taken over just as a great company. It's got tremendous running room. They have some of the best tier one acreage in the Permian Basin. They have, you know, a couple decades worth of worth of high quality drilling locations. They got a great mix of uh, production: uh, fifty eight percent crude oil, twenty one percent high value NGLs, and twenty one percent natural gas. And right now, the liquid, their liquids revenue is 94% of their revenue. So they're, they're not hurt at all by these lower gas prices. And after the deal closes uh, at the end of this year, it's expected to close in the fourth quarter of this year. So they're going to enter 2025. And based on my forecast, and they've given guidance, they've given production guidance and detailed guidance for uh, 2025. It should uh, generate like over 10 billion of operating cash flow, of which 5.5 billion will be free cash flow. So when you divide that by the outstanding shares, you know that's like 30 something dollars per share. And they have publicly said they are going to return 50% of their free cash flow, which is 18.75 per share, will be returned to shareholders in a form of dividends and stock buybacks. That's over a 10% yield based on today's uh, share price, but 
It, this thing's getting rave reviews by all of the uh, analysts. I've looked their five most recent analyst price target increases that have been posted by TipRanks just in the last week. The lowest one is 177, but it's way lower than anybody else. And the highest one is from uh, Neil Dingman at Truist Financial, which is a, a five-star, one of the most highly respected energy sector analysts. His valuation is 250 per share, so it's selling selling for 200 per day, and it's uh, today. And his top price target is 250, and it, and it pays really good dividends now for like a, uh, about a six, five or six percent dividend yield now, but it's really the, the long-term growth potential of that one. So you got any questions about Diamondback? No, I think you covered it all. Dan, I was going to ask you about the dividend and the sustainability there, as well as some of the price targets, but I think you covered it all there. So let's move on to, I guess we could call it Diamondback's little brother here, yeah. Viper Energy. Diamondback does hold a little over 51% of the outstanding shares of Viper Viper is a minerals holding company, bit different than an actual producer. Take us through what you like about Viper Energy. Well, first of all, if, if you if you have any listeners that really love, they're bullish on you know fossil fuels anyway. That the mineral companies are the safest bet. They have no drilling liability. They just they own the actual minerals, and they don't expire. Minerals don't expire. So. When people drill and complete wells on their land, they start getting royalty checks. And Viper was created because Diamondback did not feel that they were getting credit for their minerals. Because instead of just going out and leasing land, they were going out and actually buying people's mineral rights. So they didn't have to worry about expiration dates. And it's one of their you know things that was very attractive when it first went public. So they owned a lot of minerals. So a few years ago, they decided to create Viper and drop down all their minerals into Viper. Uh, Diamondback currently owns 51.2%, and they do control the company. In fact, they have they have their conference calls, you know, in the same room together and everything. So anyway, but uh, when the merger of of Endeavor into Diamondback closes, Endeavor also owns a lot of minerals. Now Endeavor is a private company, so you know they didn't need to spin off their minerals. They've owned all these minerals for a long time, and it's estimated that those minerals produce about 26 thousand BOE per day of current production and a high percentage of it is oil and liquids. And that once those go into Diamondback, Diamondback's going to drop those down into Viper and they will, they'll get, they'll get stock, they'll get or some cash for that or something. And Viper will go out and get a loan and pay them for it, whatever. But then that's going to take Viper, Viper's production. They just announced yesterday their fourth quarter results. So it's current production is was 43,783 BOE a day, 56% oil and 22% NGLs in the fourth quarter. But that would go up to like 70,000 BOE a day or 75,000 BOE a day if they drop all of Endeavor's minerals into Viper. Now, in addition to that, if you're familiar with the minerals company, so what you want to look at is how much drilling activity is on their acreage. Well, I listened to uh, the conference call when they were talking about the merger and they said they're probably going to have like 20 rigs drilling on those minerals. Uh, and they're, they're a very aggressive driller. Diamondback's one of the most aggressive drillers in the Permian Basin. So that means in addition to getting, you know, a year from now being at 70,000 BOE per day, they're going to have steady production growth in Viper. It pays out a very high percent. I think it pays out about 60% of its free cash flow. And, it, and because it has no drilling liability or no drilling expenses, 
a very high percentage of their operating cash flow is free cash flow. So I got them. I think in 2025, their dividend could rise to over 350, maybe even $4 a share, which would be, you know, a 10% dividend yield a year from now. Yeah, Dan, that would be a pretty attractive dividend yield. And just in this area of the mineral rights, I think a lot of our listeners will be more familiar if we called it like a royalty company. Yeah, essentially, that's royalty what it companies. is. Yeah, that's what but when called. you think about the lay of the land, Dan, as far as the royalty or mineral companies, you know, you've mentioned other uh, companies on our show before, like Citio or PHX or Blackstone or Kimbrel. And in Canada, there's freehold royalties and Prairie Sky and Topaz. Where does Viper fit into the whole universe of these mineral and royalty stocks? Well, it, of the four we follow, it's the largest by far, and it's the most heavily weighted to oil, and that's why I like it the most. And it's the most, and it's also the most secure because of its relationship with Diamondback. Diamondback purposely does drill on their minerals. You know, they they well, think about it. When when Ven- Venom makes uh, distributions, fifty one point two percent of those payouts go to Diamondback. So they want to drill on their minerals, and Endeavor is going to be the same way. Uh, so they're they're focusing on those lands where they own the mineral rights, and that what that does that guarantees that you're gonna you're gonna have uh, production growth. Now, so you said Cityo and uh, Kimball and that. See, they don't have this kind of relationship with a big upstream company. You know, maybe they you know are friends with some of them, but there's no direct ownership in their company uh, by somebody who wants to go drill purposely on their land. So I think that's a big plus for Viper. All right, Dan, thank you, as always, for spending time with us, sharing some of your insights and some of the companies that you follow in the Energy Perspectus group. Look, there, there's a lot of companies that you follow, always identified into different categories, depending on what the investor is looking for. So I will post a link to the Energy Perspectus group. So everyone who's listening, who wants to dive a bit more into oil and natural gas companies and the sector they can follow you there dan again thank you very much for your time on this weekend show everyone thanks for tuning in on this weekend show we'll be back with you full time next week be sure to visit our website kereport.com and podcast the ke report to stay up to date with all our daily editorials and company updates i hope you all have a great rest of your weekend For our upcoming appearance schedule, visit kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back in just a moment.